the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. didn't know by now my name is chad and every single week we go back in time we uh, we look at the finer days of pro wrestling and this one is a real finer day <laughs> without a doubt uh but before we get into the topic at hand i want to introduce uh, returning to the new generation airwaves for the first time in a long time gone but certainly not forgotten uh from the uh i don't even know what the frm podcast uh, world the great uh, Mr. Mike Freeland coming back to uh, grace us with his presence once again. Wow, I don't know what to say after that introduction. My gosh, thanks everybody. We're we're done tonight. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it, it's great to be back. It's uh, it's been a while since you and I got to uh, to sit down and talk wrestling, and this is definitely a topic that uh, I can't wait to sink my teeth into. But it's great to be here. Great to be here with your listeners, and uh, can't wait to get into it. Very nice. Yes, I'm calling this, and then there was Raw. <laughs> because that's the way it kind of popped up. Now, ironically, uh, Scott Smith, who's a great listener of the uh, the New Generation Declassified World, basically read my mind uh, as I was kind of shooting around topics and what I wanted to talk about. Uh, threw out a suggestion uh, Tuesday morning for us. I know he's on the other, in another uh, continent, so for us it was Tuesday morning. Uh, suggesting covering the first episode of Raw. I literally had this on the, the plate. It was possibly going to be next week's episode uh, to really tie in with the anniversary, but it has jumped the line. Uh, so you will have to put those Ahmed Johnson notes on hold, Mike, as I had originally had planned <laughs> to possibly Darn. talk about Ahmed Johnson. But we're going to talk about the first episode of Monday Night Raw. Obviously, the show that changed the way wrestling television, especially on Monday nights, uh, was viewed uh, as a little show called Primetime Wrestling uh, just went away one week. And the next week, we got this live uh, madness that would become to known, uh, be known to us as Monday Night Raw. So let's talk about early memories and thoughts on the debuting show uh, Monday Night Raw. I remember just being really excited because, you know, as you know, and a lot of people know that it was only on the weekends that you would watch your WWF stuff, your Saturday mornings with uh, your punch bowl to cereal. And it was like I got so used to that same routine. And then 1993 rolls around and all of a sudden you find out, wait a minute, it's going to be on a- another night. And it was definitely it was definitely exciting because it was going to be, you know, as we soon found out at one point going to be live and that was going to be a whole new element. But um, yeah, it was, it was really exciting. It was something that you could look forward to after having to start another school week. Oh my gosh. But it was going to be on Monday and, and I loved it. It was really, really exciting. It really was. And now I do remember primetime wrestling and being a very prominent spot on those Monday nights at eight o'clock and having a nice uh, jam packed uh, two hours. Uh, this would be dropped down to one hour. It would be live. Like you said, to start, it would be live intermittently afterwards. Uh, but primetime wrestling for younger generation, you know, you really couldn't stay up on a Monday night to watch uh, two hours of WWF programming. So if you were able to set a VHS tape or, you know, maybe it was a holiday. Your parents will let you stay up. It was the summertime and they let you watch it. I remember not really watching primetime wrestling as often as maybe I should have, especially at this point as Monday Night Raw kicks off. Uh, but more than anything, I think I remember just tuning in and seeing Raw and not knowing what the heck it was because I had missed the primetime <laughs> wrestling before. So this is in a new era of WWF programming. We would come to see WWF Mania would also debut around this time. So there was a real shift 
in the uh, the programming schedule, which is why I do label this as the kickoff to what would become the new generation. And hopefully that starts to gain some steam because if you really look at this show, it's a lot different than the old studio or the old studio throws by Vince McMahon and company. And then the arena, you know, massive, huge giant arena squash matches that they would show for years prior to this. Yeah, they definitely stepped things up and it was a lot more interactive and it wasn't that big, you know, green screen type of deal where you would see them and then the big, huge packed arenas and the matches where you would see a bunch of jobbers and whatnot. It was really more stars versus stars in a lot of ways. And that's really what kind of drew people in, drew me in. I mean, it was more people who I recognized versus other people that I recognized as well which I was like, wait a minute, this is a little different. I think I could get into this. Yeah, I'm half and half still to this day. I mean, I, I'm not fully over it. I did love the squash matches. You know, I did like seeing the really? Yeah, because, you know, you got to see the guys spotlighted. You got to see them do moves and do these unique little traits that we'd come to know and love about them. And then when you got a one-on-one -on -one match, you know, you got your uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine versus Rugged Ronnie Garvin. It was like a huge deal because you didn't see these guys interacting. All you saw was squashes. All you saw was three-minute, you know, literal punch jobs and uh, a couple punches, kicks, throws, and a finisher, and then we were off to the races. I love that. I thought that was a great formula. This would borrow from it and just add in, yeah, more marquee names, so to speak, kind of filling in the squash role because we see on this first episode of Monday Night Raw – we see guys that were established stars getting squashed. Yeah, I thought it was um, it was interesting just because the whole look to it as well. It was a lot, and I know we can use the phrase edgier, and that's kind of like one of those you know uh, words that people like to use now. But the ring girls, especially on this first one, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, wait a second, mm -hmm. I don't remember this one. But yeah, it it definitely had an appeal to it that was definitely trying to to change, meaning it had some elements of old school, but yet you could tell there was some sprinkled stuff in there. Some of the comments during the commentary were a little more turned up a little bit, and especially with uh, some of the visual aids, if you will. That's right. Yes. And this is we're going all the way back. Yeah, you know, getting your time machine with us. Here we go. January eleventh, nineteen ninety-three, the Manhattan Center in New York City, uh, in the shadows of Madison Square Garden. The Hammerstein Ballroom is in the same venue as the uh, the Manhattan Center. So a lot of wrestling history in this building. But we would join the commentary team at ringside of Vince McMahon. The Macho Man Randy Savage, who had always kind of been dabbling around the superstars uh, side of things, uh, now moved up to this main show. And longtime recognized New York comedian, famous for I Miss in the Morning appearances, uh, Rob Bartlett being the third mic uh, to this uh, ensemble. Um, what do you think about Rob Bartlett in this spot, getting a pretty coveted uh, you know, microphone on this early stage of Raw? Yeah, that was uh, that was new to me because I wasn't really familiar with him since I wasn't in that market where I would have come across him before. But it definitely had that feeling like he was kind of like a Heenan, but an edgier type of Heenan. And he was using more up-to-date references with some of his comments. Um, it was entertaining. It was. But um, I don't know. I, I, I wonder what the average wrestling fan thought of Rob Bartlett. I didn't mind, but um, I don't know. You kind of fall in love with your broadcast uh, stables, if you will, like the gorillas, the Bobbies, um, you know, obviously Vince and Jesse. And this was different. Um, not necessarily different in a bad way, but just different. So that's why it might've taken a little bit to warm up to him. Yeah. And he was basically there to try to infuse that comic relief and infuse that, Anything can happen or be said uh, side of uh, of Monday Night Raw's presentation. And intertwined in the first episode are sketches of Bobby Heenan trying to get into the building, dressing up as a rabbi, dressing up as a woman, his aunt, I believe it was, mm -hmm. uh, or Rob Bartlett's aunt, excuse me. Uh, great little sketches between Sean Mooney and Bobby Heenan. And Bobby Heenan would eventually join the commentary. Savage would jump out and wrestle every once in a while. Um, even Vince missed one or two episodes and, and they all kind of squeezed together. 
Uh, but Rob Bartlett, I just, I, I can't even say in retrospect, yeah, I liked it or whatever. I still don't know what to think about it 30 years later. You know, I still sit here and wrestle with it and say, do I like it? Do I not like it? I was never a huge Rob Bartlett fan in terms of his comedy. I've listened to Rob Bartlett 80 million times because I used to listen to I Miss in the Morning with my dad in the car. And then later on, as I Miss was, uh, you know, on the radio in New York. So I'd hear Rob Bartlett all the time. I just, I don't know how it fits this uh, <laughs> this equation and what he did to tickle Vince to add him into this commentary booth. Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, once again, you being from that market, you were more familiar with him. And I think it was kind of like, huh, I know the guy. I'm not really sure how he works into wrestling. I think for some of us who weren't in the, the Northeast, we were kind of like, who is this, like, who is this outsider? And I feel like in some ways in wrestling, tell me if you agree with this, you kind of defend like, well, where's my guys? You know, like I know my guys who announce and he was different. He was funny. Um, and looking back at it, like you said, 30 years from now, I mean, as Joey Botafuco comments and yes. uh, all his different type of references, <laughs> I mean, they are funny. Like being older now and being able to appreciate, uh, you know how like Disney and Pixar, you know, drops in adult, comments and whatnot just to entertain them while the kids are sitting there i can now look back and appreciate uh the humor that was rob bartlett on the very first raw but in the moment i don't feel like i was digging him a whole lot yeah i agree again i'm still conflicted i don't know what to think all these years later because it's like i get it what vince was going for you know it was raw new york you know pun intended and the atmosphere fit that of a kind of rogue voice in Rob Bartlett. But he had like, you know, <laughs> no ties to wrestling. It's not like he was like, yeah, I'm Rob Bartlett. You know, I, uh, I know this, this, and this. He like, he just knew nothing. He knew whatever he was prepped on for that show. And like, in a way, I do like that because I don't want somebody who's like, you know, going to be fawning over every single thing that's presented. But maybe somebody funnier. I hate to say it. No offense to Rob Bartlett. Maybe just somebody who was a little funnier. Um, but I guess it was more just he was the New York feel for this show. That's that's where I guess we'd have to end the Rob Bartlett topic. L let me ask you this really quickly. Do you do you feel like in a lot there's a lot of Coliseum home videos where you had the broadcasting team of Sean Mooney and um Lord Alfred Hayes? Why did Mooney never really get a fair shot at being at the booth? I, I would think that just from his time being put in with the company that he would have been the natural succession to someone else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I, I like Mooney where they had him. I think that nowadays how guys kind of rotate in into top spots and, and better positions, maybe, you know, again, on primetime wrestling, you'd hear that same combination doing a marquee match. That was, uh, you know, the main event of the show. You'd hear them on the Coliseum videos, like you said, I don't know. I like Mooney where he was. You know, he did house shows as well. There's a few random house shows where he's the uh, the commentary lead. Uh, if Vince is out there, you, you got to go with Vince. And I don't think anybody else could play the straight man. I even, you know, I'll even say, and we've done episodes about this in the past. I mean, I'm giving Macho Man his due just because he's the Macho Man. <laughs> I'm not loving him out there either. But I, you know, I don't know. Sean Mooney was great, but he was perfect where they had him in this era as the the straight man backstage do a little comedy, very versatile. And actually, this is really the end of Sean Mooney, too. The beginning of Raw is the end of Sean Mooney, which is very, very odd because you do think of these early Monday Night Raws and think of him, no, he's really gone a few months after this. Uh, so that's, again, another changing of the guard subtly. But no, I liked him where he was, to, to answer your question. Some like chocolate, some like vanilla, yeah. <laughs> We're going back. We're going to do our dueling uh, macho mans. Remind me. Let me just put a bookmark on this. Remind me about Coliseum video at the end of our conversation. I definitely will. I know that that's if, if anybody cannot remind me of Coliseum video, I would be uh, shocked. <laughs> uh, but yeah, again, Manhattan Center, Monday Night Raw, gritty New York, 1993, a vibe of this arena, very much so like a little bingo hall down in Philadelphia. Uh, a very rowdy crowd, but again, this is New York. This is the same kind of crowd you would see in the first 10 rows of a Madison Square Garden show. I mean, you virtually would see the same people. And actually, if you do look really close, you will see folks from that ECW arena crowd Yes, in the Monday Night Raw crowd. So a kind of prelude to what would become that ECW uh, atmosphere with the, the close crowd 
and the rabid fans. Could not agree more. It's funny. You, you start to pick up on who sits in the front row and you're like, wait a minute. I've seen those people before. Yeah. Yeah, you can. And actually, you know, a few weeks ago, I did cover uh, the Monday Night Raw from July uh, 1993 that uh, my broadcast partner, uh, Francine, was in the front row for. And uh, she even said, you see the same people who are at the ECW arena in the crowd for that show in July 93. So even though people want to say WWF, WCW stole from the old uh, extreme uh, hotbed down there in Philly, kind of all started at the Manhattan Center. I hate to say it. And this crowd was pretty into almost every match that they had. Now, do you happen to know the dark matches of this card? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, let me think, let me think, let me think. Was it, if memory serves me correct, I want to say it was, was it, um, which version of it? Was it Kona Crush and Bam Bam Bigelow? Yes, they did have a dark match on this show. You would be uh, correct. It would be Kona Crush. No other Crush would uh, would do uh, a service to this era of Monday Night Raw. It was the Kona Crush defeating Bam Bam Bigelow via disqualification when his nemesis Doink interfered. But there was a man who used to sit in the first couple of rows at the Manhattan Center with a uh, yellow T-shirt that would say Bob Backlund, WWF champion. Okay. okay, I didn't I didn't very, really notice if he was in this one, but Bob Backlund, former WWF champion, mainstay in New York, sold out Madison Square Garden from 1977 to 1983 in the dark match that was broadcast on the Italian version of Superstars, Whoa. taking on the guy we'd see in the main event against The Undertaker, Damian Demento. What? <laughs> Goodness gracious. How random is that? It's pretty damn random. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Again, Bob Backlund, we would see him as the WWF champion a year and a half later in uh, November 94. Here, he was just about uh, three, four months back from, from his sabbatical and leaving the company. Uh, but here he is. You're the, again, the Italian version of WWF superstars got from the Monday Night Raw debut arena. A Bob Backlund, Damian Demento, seven minute and 30 second uh, marathon uh, where Bob Backlund wins via disqualification when Damian Demento began choking Backlund over the top rope. Oh, geez. That, that sounds like something he'd do. Damian Demento. I mean, it would only be setting him up for his main event spot a little bit later uh, in the, uh, the program. Um, and what would also be interesting about these Monday Night Raw tapings is that at the time they would record the old one week live, and then either one or two weeks taped. This one, they just did it live. So I guess they really didn't know what to expect. They also did tape a, uh, a match for WWF Mania because we would get at least one exclusive match on Mania in the early days of Mania, and it was Yokozuna defeating Jim Powers with the bonsai drop. That bonsai drop still to this day bothers me. Ever since I saw that meme where the one guy, I can't remember his name, uh, uh, the guy literally got his chest caved in. Oh, that's a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Ever since then, I look at every bonds I drop like oh, that seems so sketch, but you know, Hey, it was the most dangerous move in my opinion back then. It was oh, scary yeah. looking. No, it absolutely wasn't the force. It would hit you. I don't care. You know <laughs> how big your butt is. It's going to hurt when somebody comes in your chest cavity at full force uh, out of that corner. And somebody with Yokozuna's increasing size. It's like every time he came out, it seemed like he was a little bit bigger. Um, just a devastating move, but perfect for him. Uh, have you ever seen Yokozuna's uh, dark match as Kokino about mm, six to eight months before this? I have not. Now, I have seen other Kokino matches before, um, but I've not seen his dark match. It is on the YouTubes, if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, it was a part of the really cool uh, WWF Dark Matches uh, DVD or WWE, you know, untelevised. I forget what, exactly what they called it. But they have him as Kokino, um, you know, doing basically the Yokozuna moveset, just a little more animated than, uh, than what he would be as Yokozuna. But Yokozuna, you know, gets a lot of flack. I, I know people who just were not Yokozuna fans even uh, more than just hating him as a bad guy, just not a uh, fan, but I, it was so different. Um, and you got to look back like he was so young and he was thrust into such a big spot. And then he's literally the first match on the kickoff to Monday Night Raw. That tells you just how much they, they felt Yokozuna was as a, uh, as a character, but also, you know, what he had to bring to the table as a performer.
Oh, they were definitely strapping the uh, the rocket to him. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, a new generation, you know, brand new show. They're going to go ahead and they're going to launch this, you know, new characters. And man, I tell you what, if you were a wrestling fan and you saw this, you definitely were hooked. It was a perfect presentation because it was that sumo wrestler type of, of character, which you said before, hadn't really been done before. And to my knowledge in wrestling and he did it so well, and he had somebody very familiar, uh, Mr. Fuji, with him as well. So even if you didn't know Yoko, you knew Fuji, and you knew the relationship that would be. You saw the salt, and you know what? From there, they hit the ground running, and uh, what a great run for a guy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, multiple-time WWF champion, tag champion, involved in main event storylines from the beginning here in January 93 all the way through uh, just about the beginning of 96, really after Vader puts him out, it's kind of like the end of his heyday. Um, and he's involved in a lot of stuff, even teaming with Owen Hart. Um, but Yokozuna, yeah, and they, they did a great documentary on him uh, last year that was uh, phenomenal and great that they finally spotlighted it, the Samoan uh, dynasty in full effect, even though he's supposed to be uh, Japanese. It's kind of, that's Vince McMahon <laughs> logic there. Now, what do you think about the presentation of the hour show versus like what I, I said earlier, there were two hours for primetime. What do you think about the one hour format? I like the one hour format because it kept it going. It was boom, 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 boom. And nothing seemed to drag. Everything seemed to really continue to build upon the prior match. The audience stayed hot. Your interest level never dipped. At least it didn't for me back then. And rewatching it now didn't really dip for me. It was really, it was a good tempo. I got what I wanted and I got in and I got out. And I felt like I had more than just an hour's worth of, of my wrestling. But it was really good. You had one, two, three, four, five matches on the show. You had a uh, WWF Royal Rumble, you know, event center when they ran down the Loved stuff that it. was going on at the Rumble. Those are, are my favorite to watch. Yes. Uh, you want like a truncated version of the pay-per-view without watching the actual pay-per-view, like as a nostalgia thing. Watch the event centers or the pay-per-view control centers or whatever they were calling them. Uh, those are absolutely out of this world good and just a, a, a lesson on television production and how to build things correctly. Uh, you also got, like I said, the couple Bobby Heenan um, breakaway segments, him trying to get back into the building. Uh, there was a headlock on hunger uh, little promo that ran because that was a, a nice little uh, charitable endeavor that WWF had at the time. There was also Ico Pro commercials, which Ico Pro was the supplement that the WWF was getting behind how the heck can they squeeze all that into one hour, but yet they have three hours of television on Monday nights and they barely get a couple hundred thousand people anymore. I think they just wanted it more. I think it was a more hungry company at the time. And I think Vince was really, he was driven to really make this thing a go because remember he had the boom in the eighties, but then as we remember, you know, the early nineties, things started to wane. The roster was is turned over big time and he was looking to try to reinvent himself again. And I think a hungry Vince, just like when he had, you know, um, a younger generation of wrestlers coming up down the road here again, he just found ways to make things work. And it just proves that his mind and his creativity when put in the right direction, can do amazing things. Um, I just think he was more of a driven guy back then. And I think, yeah, this this show, compared to what you said before, Raw nowadays, it's completely night and day. Completely night and day. How about uh, also, we got to throw in, Vince McMahon did an in-ring promo with Razor Ramon promoting the uh, Royal Rumble title match of Bret Hart and Razor Ramon. So not only you got five matches, you got all that other stuff. You got an in-ring promo with a guy who was on the rise like Razor Ramon. And these early Monday Night Raws are very, very much highlighted by Scott Hall as Razor Ramon in matches and in promos, which eventually he would turn. We know the whole one, two, three kid thing. I've chronicled that like crazy on New Generation Declassified. Uh, but one of the things that I always loved about this promo, they showed one of my favorite things of all time when um, Razor Ramon attacks Owen Hart during a backstage interview with Raymond Rougeau. Love that. Still, to this day, I, I pop for it when I see it. But also, a great line by Scott Hall, it took him eight and a half months to get into the title picture, but it took Bret Hart eight and a half years to get a title victory, a title shot. I just thought that was a really cool line 
that stood out and whether or not, you know, that was something that Scott Hall came up with or was fed. That's a phenomenal line because that's a great callback kind of not acknowledging the past, the big guys, the guys that are all gone, but showing how long Bret Hart's been around mixed in with all these new faces. Yeah, no, great, great thought right there because it does. There is some symbolism there. You know, it's the old guard versus what the new guard is going to be and where, you know, he is is basically talking about how it took forever for those guys. Well, you know what? We're bigger and we're better than them, and it doesn't take us as long. And, you know, I, the thing about the Razor Ramon character that I loved the most was all the vignettes they did to make him feel special before he even got into the ring. And I think... There was something about Scott Hall in those early days of Razor Ramon that just, once again, we keep coming back to this, felt different. We didn't have that kind of Scarface, um, Al Pacino type of character, and it was just like, wow, that was really well done. Um, yeah, no, I think it was great. I think there was a lot of uh, th there was a lot of subtle things that you could see that they were putting in the works to see if other wrestling fans were going to pick up on it, but I, I definitely saw some of those nuances. Yeah. And then again, uh, one more little thing is at the end of the show. <laughs> so again, one hour, five matches in ring promo, Royal rumble report, all these different vignettes outside a closing promo with Vince and doink the clown on the outside of the ring where they further the crush doink storyline just to get jam packing all this stuff to, to do what? to leave you wanting more and wanting you to come back the next week. The matches, not something that I would, you know, necessarily write home about. I don't think there's many great matches on this first show, and we'll go over the card here in a second. But I kind of like all the outside stuff that's going on. The Heenan stuff was great. The Razor Ramon promo was great. And even this closer with Doink and Crush is a phenomenal end to this first show because you're sitting here going like, I'm watching a sadistic clown and this big Hawaiian guy with a, with a blonde mullet wearing bright orange, having a confrontation in this weird small arena that I'm not used to. It's This is not your traditional wrestling show in 1993. No, definitely not. But I think what the one thing that we can look at now, you know, hindsight's 2020, but what did Paul Heyman do with ECW? There was something that he did. He hided, he hided, wow. He, he hid uh, the things that he didn't think that were people's strengths, but he highlighted the things that they did really, really well. And I think with the matches, it might not have been that hot, but he accentuated everything else around it, which made the matches not so bad, but it made everything else around it so good. It's, it's just like it's just like baklava. You know, you got that you got that filo dough. Eh, I tell you what, but then you get onto the inside of that bad boy and it tastes delicious. <laughs> As somebody who does not like baklava at all, I you are not a your, baklava guy. I will take your, uh, I will take your analogy and give you credit for rebounding from Hyded or whatever you said. <laughs> so I will give you that. I, you you made it past uh, that that blunder and you covered it up with a great baklava comparison. But I don't like baklava, so we'll let that one slide too. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> oh man it's just uh it's just too funny I, I just looking back at this you know i'm not the fan i used to be of of regular wrestling i don't watch regular wrestling anymore it is nothing against the performers of today it just doesn't grab me the way this card would grab me and i find myself every night i'm still you know if i want to go to sleep i want to put something on i'm watching an old thing i'm listening to an old thing just to go to sleep and it's just because it was done so differently and I don't know why, like you said, maybe it was just it's 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 old habits die hard. Vince just is a little older now. He can't kind of grasp the same creative process. He doesn't have his Pat Patterson anymore. He doesn't have all these lieutenants that are now, unfortunately, all dying. You know, all these guys that were around him for all these years are all gone, uh, literally. Um, it's just it's so remarkable that this show is still on the air. Yeah, this uh, WWE, for a lot of ways, it has, in recent memory, succeeded in spite of itself. And I feel like that luster that used to exist just isn't there anymore. And, and whether it's a matter of, you know, stars are going to come and go. But the creative process, the machine behind making the show should still be fairly consistent or they should have the Coca-Cola formula. You know what I mean? Like plug and chug different people in these different places. 
But it's you're right. Things have changed to the point where it's not recognizable. It's not what we used to know. And in in many regards, you know, it, it may be kind of like, and I hate to say this because that this wasn't necessarily the case, but you know, Michigan football wasn't always Michigan football. Do you know what I mean? It was living off its nostalgia, but obviously now they've they've made changes. But it just isn't the same, and you can't live off of your past. But there was a lot of hunger back then, and things were really good. And unfortunately, I don't even see uh, a shadow of of any of that in today's wrestling. Yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. Um, and that's unfortunate. And for somebody like me who cannot, I, I mean, I, I hear everybody talking about this main event the other day from uh, the, the pay-per-view over the weekend. I just can't get into it. And whether or not the formula of Coca-Cola, the secret sauce, whatever you want to say, it's gone. At least we still have this footage, right? At least we still have this stuff to go back and talk about. And I honestly, almost more than ever, I feel like people are talking about retro and vintage stuff more than ever. Um, and I guess in a way that's good, but in some ways it's bad for the current product. Am I right? Is that is that a weird you know, thing to say? <laughs> you're, you know, you're right. It's kind of like, you know, this was the past and this was great, but you always, like anything, you want things to, get, to build on things and to get better and for things to continue with that certain level of excitement. No, of course not. It's not going to be exactly the same. But when you have more people flipping back, almost going to like TV land um, or going to antenna TV uh, instead of watching some of the new stuff, that is a pretty telling sign that, guess what? The creative minds just aren't what they once were. Or maybe we were so spoiled with how good things were that we can't handle anything that's less than what it was. So, you know, maybe Vince gave us uh, all of his good stuff early on. And then obviously things have uh, definitely drifted apart uh, since then. But yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm a big fan of the older stuff. I will always put on something old to listen to, to relax to. Um, in wrestling today, good. Love the current guys. Um but I feel like sometimes it's just uh, it's apples and oranges. Yes, it's apples, oranges, and like uh, baklava, baklava, ghost pepper, and uh, sweet pepper. It's you know they're all different. Um, here's the card if you want to watch it. Again, there's nothing that really hits you over the head with uh, significance. If you want to impress your friends, the trivia question of who was the first person to enter the ring uh, on the first ever Monday Night Raw, the answer to that would be WWE Hall of Famer Coco Beware. Uh, as like I said, he de- he was defeated by uh, uh, Yokozuna, uh, squashed, uh, squashed like a grape. Um, and it, what a size difference between Coco and Yokozuna. Coco's not a huge guy height wise, but just size wise, what a what a discrepancy between the two of them. Yeah, and and I had forgotten that he and Owen were high energy. Am I correct on that? Yes. So now this was just about. Uh, around the time that high energy would eh, kind of be on its way out. Um, they were going to be breaking Owen away sooner or later, but this was also the end of Coco. I believe Coco was let go not too long after this for the final time. Wow. Hall of Famer Coco beware, by the way. Some people may or may not be aware that he, Coco seems to get a lot of a bad rap. You know, it's like, oh, Coco's in the Hall of Fame. Coco was really good in Memphis. He was good in um, Mid-South, and he was really good in a lot of his stuff. Um, I just feel like, unfortunately, he got lost in the shuffle when it came to the the huge larger-than-life personalities that were the WWF in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I just watched a... um... Uh, a tag match from uh, 1987 and it was Coco and uh, the junkyard dog uh, against, I think it was like King Harley race and somebody else, or it was Butch Reed and one man gang. It was, it was something of that combination, but Coco was the one getting the spotlight and junkyard dog was the one taking the back seat. And then here you go. Five years later, Coco is the one who's taking the back seat and elevating the other talent. So it's just, it's a, uh, just a matter of how it goes. You know, not everybody's on top forever. And Coco had a great run, you know, he was very popular. And now uh, he's got that Hall of Fame uh, inscription under his autograph. So there you go. And he's a great dude. I love Coco. I've hung around Coco. He's an interesting guy. He's got some great stories. Yeah, I think that my my next version of Coco, because I don't believe he went to WCW in the no. when everything. Everyone started switching back and forth. But my last memory of Coco as far as being wrestling related was beyond the mat. Yeah. And. And yeah, it was like uh, 
it was cool to see him, but yet it was that side of wrestling that it was just sad. And I don't know if, if, if Barry Blaustein intended it to be that way. Um, but it was just, it was just sad because somebody who I think was so dedicated, who always seemed to have a great attitude about wrestling, hard worker. And that's kind of how it ended. And it was just, it was a tough thing to see. That was around the time, uh, the 97, 98, 99, when those legends of the eighties and early nineties were kind of looked at as the down on their luck, you know, uh, flea market superstars. And Jake obviously was in horrible shape, drug addict and, um, the uh the low light of beyond the mat because that is not a fun time to look back on it's almost like you watch beyond the mat it still holds up in certain ways you just skip over jake <laughs> yeah and get to the next the next mick foley uh segment in the movie um also rick and scott steiner defeat the executioners which i believe were barry hardy and uh Dwayne gill otherwise known as uh gilberg typical uh, steiner brothers uh squash one with the top rope bulldog if you like a Steiner Brothers match, this is it's a great, quick, three-minute uh, bulldog. You're over. Back to the showers. Um, my favorite match of this entire show, Shawn Michaels pinning Max Moon, who was Paul Diamond, who has a history with Shawn Michaels, uh, linked together through the AWA for many years. Uh, uh, Paul Diamond would actually even be a trainer at Shawn Michaels' school, uh, the TWA at one point. So I do like this match because they have great chemistry. Max Moon was such a crappy character. I mean, I can't even look back fondly on Max Moon. He looks ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, it looked like somebody ate too many different colors of cotton candy and barfed. Yeah. I mean, it was it was very talented. I thought he is a talented wrestler, but you're right. When, sometimes when you get strapped with a gimmick that just looks ridiculous. I mean, it's it, it's embarrassing looking, especially to have somebody as talented as he is to go out there. And I mean, it was a great match. I, I liked it. I was highly entertained. I mean, it was, what, at least 10, 12 minutes. And Sean obviously went over, rightfully so, Intercontinental Champion. But, um, but yeah, it was uh, it was definitely different. Some of those characters were like, eh, I don't know how that one got through creative. I mean, Paul Diamond's a big dude, you know, very agile for his size. Was doing a lot of like cannonballs and somersaults and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't remember. Uh, I'm looking. At, I have it up on the monitor as we're talking. I don't think. Shawn Michaels wins with the super kick. I believe he was still using that like side suplex. Side suplex, yes. Yeah, here, yeah, here he is. He's hitting it as we're watching it. Oh, nope, there's a fake out. Oh, here we go. Now he's got it. Just does not. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. You think the super kick, which was used as a uh, setup move, was a little more impactful. But nonetheless, uh, the blue-plated intercontinental champion, uh, Shawn Michaels, is about to leave the building. Did you like Shawn back in this time? I did. This is the only time I was ever a Shawn Michaels fan. <laughs> I, I did. I liked Shawn early on. And then when he started to do the more of the attitude, uh, bad boy type of stuff, I, I really faded off of him for that. But when he was with Sherry, um, just with the chewing gum and the looks he would give, loved it. That was the version of Shawn I really got into. I think, you know, and this is whatever we have up here on the screen was around Raw 1000. This is probably about the time I tapped out like full time just because I, I just was feeling it was not for me anymore. Yeah. Del Rio. I love Del Rio on top. Uh, Punk, Sheamus, you know, I, th this was around the time I'd say I was just about ready to tap out on a full time uh, basis. Um, I always say it was when Roddy Piper that's died. A, that's a bummer, too, because, you know, you think about it. With so much great talent, it's almost a shame that the storytelling throughout it isn't that great. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I have all of this, but yet I don't have the stories that actually accentuate the talent the way they should be. It's their fault, not mine. I'm, I'm here to watch it. They just don't put on the same product. <laughs> uh, and then uh, this took place during the Royal Rumble segment. It was there for the crowd, not for the TV. Tito Santana pins Iron Mike Sharp, but would absolutely set up the fact that next week on Monday Night Raw, Ric Flair would make his Raw debut to take on Tito Santana. So Tito goes into a big match with Flair, which, you know, at one time would have been a, a not a dream match, but a match you'd pay to see, um, you know, maybe 10 years earlier where uh, Tito was on top of his game and Flair obviously was the man. Uh, so he beats Iron Mike Sharp. And the main event of the first ever episode of Raw is The Undertaker pinning Damian Demento in a whopping 225 with the Tombstone pile driver. I guess it's apropos 
that The Undertaker, who's so synonymous with WWE, period, would main event the first Raw. Yeah, no, I mean, he would go on to, you know, as we all know, be a huge staple of the company and in main events, you know, thousands of times. But to have him here, especially that that version of The Undertaker, just very ominous looking, you know, the the, the comments you always hear, the smell of formaldehyde. Uh, do you feel the temperature dropping? They did all of these things to really build up the the aura of who The Undertaker was. And Damian Demento, I mean, in his right, was a little creepy guy too. I mean, he was uh, a, a big dude. He got a great body. He had a very weird look. Um, but definitely he was no one to be brushed over. But uh, yeah, you have these two very scary-looking dudes in the ring with each other. But uh, once again... Undertaker sends him home happy. Yep. No, that's uh, that's the way it would go on to be for many, many a Raw uh, going forward. Um, and, you know, and that's it. And they give you coming back for more next week. They want you to tune in. They want you to see what they've got to offer. They would also advertise Mr. Perfect taking on Papa Shango and that the world champion Bret Hart would make his first Monday Night Raw appearance. But again, as far as I knew, tuning into Raw, that it was just this one-off special. Because look, Monday night's, Back in that day, that was Madison Square Garden night. So if you've ever seen a Madison Square Garden house show uh, that was televised, you know, they used to put them on the Coliseum videos or you'd see them on a primetime wrestling or, or something they would broadcast. Those were Monday nights. So I always knew of the Garden as being a Monday night show. So that's what I think is kind of ironic about them picking New York to have this Monday Night Raw, uh, which we would exclusively would stay for about a year. It would go between uh, Manhattan, Poughkeepsie, and uh, kind of in that general area. They'd branch out into PA. Uh, they'd go up to the Poconos. Like they would go kind of all over the place in New York for the first year or so. Uh, then they would piggyback it off of the pay-per-views and wherever the pay-per-views were going to be, which I guess was smart. But, you know, this was a new concept in 1993, as I've always said, is the changing of the guard. And this is the absolute launch to the new generation. So I'm glad we could get a chance to uh, cover it out of five stars what would you give it oh wow taking all the segments and all that into consideration along with the matches the whole thing in totality uh, we're going off of a Meltzer five star I assume just a five star period it doesn't necessarily oh, okay. have to be married <laughs> to Dave Meltzer but just five stars I would have said maybe a grade I'm or a one to ten let's say five point seven five 3.75. If this was Star Search, that's a pretty damn good score. So, I'll oh my that. God. Now you're going real old school. Love it. I'd flip over to Star Search on a Sunday afternoon. Come on. When I'd be oh sitting with my, my black and white TV in my room, you know? I miss Ed McMahon. Oh my God. You're going to get me going. I'm going to be going down the rabbit hole now of nostalgia uh, of things that I remember growing up, which was awesome. But what would you give it? I'd say about two and a half. Wow, two yeah, and a half. Two and a half. You know, I do, I like the outside stuff more than I like the inside stuff. Um, don't necessarily need the. I would have put on a better presentation for week one. I might have actually taken the stuff from week two and put it in week one. I can see that. I can definitely see that to maybe spice things up a little bit more and give, and give, give me people. Yeah, give me Brett. Give me Flair. Give me Mister Perfect. Give me those guys I know. That's what I would rather see on a, on a first episode. The only thing I can think of is maybe they're thinking, hey, let's kind of throw this out there. Let's be a teaser. Let's give you a little bit of this and then come back if you want more and more and more and keep building so they don't necessarily just, you know, give the whole thing away on the first episode. And then after that, you're like, well, what's next? But no, I completely can see it from that perspective as well. Hey, look, I'm not saying uh, what I was going to do is the right thing. You know, they, they're obviously they're <laughs> they're going to be better uh, selectors of the programming than I would. But yeah, two and a half. I put week two and week one um, getting a look at the ring girl here. Very 90s. Um, yeah, very, very 90s. <laughs> when did uh, when was it that uh, Mr. Perfect and Ric Flair had uh, the match where that was Rick send off to go? Back the to loser that? leaves town match was about. Three weeks afterwards, I want to say it was. I could actually pull it up as we are uh, as we're speaking here. That took place February first, nineteen ninety three. Wow! So it wasn't that far behind because that was one of my favorite matches. That was really, really entertaining. Loved it. Yeah, it was crazy to see when he left. That that's just it's. 
Again, it was just a change into the guard. You had to get to like it. I wasn't a huge Flair fan, but seeing him leave was obviously a huge, uh, huge loss uh, to the WWF, and that would uh, go on to change the, um, I guess, the perspective of who was going to be on the roster for sure because it was all the new guys, and that's who we get to see as the new generation kicks off here on episode one of Monday Night Raw. Now, I said it at the beginning, Coliseum Video, you mentioned it. I didn't. I didn't say a word. You mentioned it. <laughs> uh, in two weeks, in this programming spot, I'm going to take one week a month, and I'm going to kick off the Coliseum cast. My oh, man. Where I will go back and I will either not review. I don't like reviews. I like to discuss. I will take a Coliseum video topic, and I will explore it. Uh, I haven't decided what the first episode is going to be. I have a few in mind, um, but I'm going to do one episode a month diverting from the new generation declassified format. And I'm going to bring you the Coliseum cast because if anybody knows me, they know Coliseum video is what made me a fan. And I would love to transfer that knowledge from my head to yours. As anybody who listens to this uh, will be enlightened by my thoughts and my memories of anything and everything having to do with Coliseum video. So you're telling me the hottest matches, crunch classics, rampages, bashed in the USA, super tapes, which, oh my God, don't get me started. I just completely lost my mind when super tapes came out. All of that is going to be discussed? Super tapes. Best of the WWF. The, oh. the superstar profiles. Uh, the music, the look, the graphics, the artwork, the, the cases, the boxes, the tape art. Anything and everything having to do with Coliseum Video will be covered on these shows. I would like to stick to one topic. Again, I haven't decided what's going to be, but it's coming. The Coliseum cast in just a matter of weeks. Two weeks to be exact uh, from as we broadcast this episode. Um, so New Generation Declassified, not going away by any stretch. I love doing this show too, but I want to talk about a, lo a lot more of the golden era and... Uh, this is the best way I know how to do it. So, yep, coming soon, the Coliseum cast. You guys are in for a treat because literally that is going to be so awesome. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm glad somebody was able to hear it because I haven't told anybody about it. So you're the first person technically. Well, second person, of course, I told John from Two-Man Power Trip as well that I was going to be doing that once a week or once a month on the airwaves. So you're the second person, but, you know, a dramatic reveal is never uh, a bad thing. No, not at in, all. In, I can share that with all of, my, uh, all of my listeners as well. That's definitely going to be something that they're going to want to see. Absolutely. Well, I would like to uh, wrap it up here today. Please uh, share with the listeners of the uh, TMPT Empire and the New Generation Declassified uh, Universe where they can find anything and everything in the world of Mr. Mike Freeland. Wow. So if you would like to, each and every Tuesday night, we are live on Twitch, and it's twitch.tv forward slash Pod. We talk about all the main uh, news stories that are going on in the world of wrestling today. Uh, all the rumors and changing the storylines, people changing contracts, all that kind of stuff. We talk about all that kind of stuff. That's going to be happening on Tuesday nights. Uh, we always have a guest as well for Front Row Material. Um, we also do a show called Future Stars Now, which airs on our Twitch channel as well on Friday nights. It always has somebody in the indies who's making their way up right now, which is really, really exciting. We have Cult of Beardo as well. Cult of Beardo is uh, mainly our main crew who all have fashionable beards. They go ahead and they talk about old school wrestling as well. And um, Six Degrees of Written Renegade, which is my two uh, broadcast partners. They go ahead and they pick a topic just randomly. Current, old, new, whatever. They go into it as well. So in the front row material empire, we definitely, if I can steal that line, we kind of cover a lot of different things. But um, man. My hat's off to you and what you've created because I am such a mark for what you guys do and for what you guys do with Franny. And it's just you guys offer a complete package of wrestling entertainment and big inspiration for my podcasting was from you. So thank you so very much for being such a good um, influence on me. Well, thank you. That's the first time anybody's ever called me a good influence because if you ask uh, people back in the day, would have been the contrary, but in the podcast world, I'll take it. Now, I appreciate that, man. I've always said, you know, you're a uh, you're a really great uh, podcaster yourself, and uh, you just you put in the work. You know, it, you're not um, you're not just a, a, a shameless 
uh, me, me, me guy. And that's what I like about you. And, 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 and as opposed to other podcasts that have come and gone, you really know how to do it the right way. And that's why I really have uh, appreciated your, uh, your input. You know, you having me as a guest on your shows and, and stuff you've been able to build and, uh, you know, people who put themselves around the right people end up kind of making it a little bit further in this podcast world. And, uh, you definitely did that. So, uh, appreciate your time and for joining me today. If anybody wants to follow me, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter. It's at IB exclusives on Instagram. My website is ibexclusives.com. There you'll find all my autograph signings going on in the wrestling world this week. I've got still listed Jake, the snake, Ricky, the dragon steamboat, the American dragon, Brian Danielson and killer cross. Uh, private signings with them. If you have an item you'd like to get signed, send it on in. We will uh, take care of that. Just go to ibexclusives.com. This website is tmptempire.com. All of the podcasts under the TMPT umbrella, including the Vince Russo brand, Channel Attitude, the franchise Shane Douglas, the Triple Threat podcast, every single week doing it the way the franchise likes to do it, and that is no filter, uncanceled, whatever you want to call him. He's, uh, he's a guy you can't stop. Uh, uncanceled. Let's steal that one. How about what do you think about that, Mike? I like that. That's the a good one. It's the only uncanceled guy in the podcast world. Nobody else. No subscription needed. <laughs> Actually, yeah, you do for the Vince Russo brand. You absolutely needed a subscription. <laughs> so what are you talking about? And then, of course, the Queen of Extreme Francine and myself, eyes up here. It's on Patreon, patreon.com slash Francine podcast. We just added an extra show to the Creative Control Network. So uh, check us out. That's uh, a lot to digest. But uh, nonetheless, we did it. And uh, go watch Monday Night Raw's first episode. Get nostalgic for that. It's coming up here January 11th, the anniversary. Hard to believe. It's almost 30 years. 29. Holy crap. (laughs) What a a milestone. But we will say goodbye for today. From my man, Mike Freeland, this is the Chadster. We will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.